Hi, David. This week started with some global market volatility linked to a pending default by Chinese real estate developer Evergrande. Yeah. Hi, Alex. Um, you, I mean, stress in the Chinese real estate market is something that you know we have touched upon in um, previous podcasts, and and in that sense, it's a bit of a surprise to me that you know the looming default of Evergrande was a catalyst for global market volatility, considering that Evergrande bonds and equities. You know, I've been trading at distressed levels for some time. Um, you know, the moves lower in major equity markets, I, I, you know, felt bigger than they were. Um, it, was, it was really only a couple of percentage points. And, you know, they felt bigger because of the, you know, low volatility regime that we've, we've been in. Um, I mean, credit markets did not react that much outside of the Chinese high yield market. Um, but there was a modest rally in core government bonds uh, and the US dollar gain. So it was certainly a risk off episode, but it, but it proved pretty short lived with the market's focus you know, shifting back to the Fed meeting um, this week. You know, all that said, I mean, the default of uh, the biggest real estate developer in the world's second largest economy is a big deal. Evergrande has around $300 billion equivalent of liabilities. Um, including more than $20 billion of uh, international bonds. Um, if it does default, it will be the biggest you know, corporate credit event ever, and likely one of the messiest, given the sort of complex web of onshore and offshore entities that um, Evergrande has. So, you know, it, 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 is, it is a big deal, but um, it's been something that we've, you know, I, yeah, I think investors really should have been aware of for, for some time. So is Evergrande China's Lehman moment? Well, look, you know, the Chinese authorities have, you know, much greater uh, direct control over the financial sector, over the broader economy than, than obviously policymakers in, in the US and Europe have. And, and they have the resources to, to certainly manage any sort of domestic financial contagion that could come from the collapse of um, Evergrande. I think, you know, only, only if Beijing allows a wave of property market defaults would it, I think, pose a potential systemic financial risk. Um, but property, you know, from a social as well as financial and economic perspective, it's, it's just too important for Beijing to stand aside. You know, so already we've seen the PBOC this week make the biggest liquidity ejection into the market since January. Um, the authorities are now you know, intervening more directly to ensure a sort of orderly restructuring of, of Evergrande. It's, it's, it's been reported that, you know, regulators have told um, Evergrande to avoid a near-term um, uh, dollar bond uh, uh, default. And, and I think, you know, for international investors, it will be, you know, important to closely watch how offshore bonds are treated compared to those onshore. So, look, I don't think comparisons with Lehman Brothers collapsing 2008 are, are, are particularly relevant, but I do think that investors are right to be concerned about the near-term outlook for China growth. Now, you know, my view has been that the slowdown in China that you know has been showing up in the data and is due to the you know, tightening in credit and in regulatory policies will be tempered by some policy easing later this year. And I, and I still hold that view. I, I, I still think we're going to get a cut in required reserves. I mean, possibly a cut in policy rates, uh, as well as more um, fiscal spending. But it's also important to acknowledge that the risk of a more sustained economic downturn is is, is on the rise. Um, you know, on some estimates, 
around 30% of Chinese GDP is now linked directly or indirectly to the real estate uh, market. And, you know, if the authorities allow financing conditions for the sector to tighten, you know, too much for too long, and there is a property market crash, then growth next year will be much lower than than the sort of five and a half percent that is, you know, currently penciled in. Um, look, Beijing wants to end moral hazard after years of rising leverage, which has been underpinned by this notion that the government will always bail out um, failures. And, and actually, I think that's the right thing for you know, China to do. But, you know, that's something which is certainly not without its risks. Um, so I think, you know, China and its property markets definitely in the you know, things to worry about tray. But I don't think the collapse of Evergrande marks the beginning of a broader financial and economic crisis as you know the collapse of Lehman Brothers did back in uh, 2008. You mentioned the market focus on the Fed meeting this week. Was there any new information for investors to digest? Yeah, I, I, look, I mean, Fed Chair Jay Powell is going to be really pleased, I think, by the lack of market reaction to what was a de facto announcement that the Fed's going to start tapering uh, QE you know, in November, and we'll finish that by the middle of next year. Uh, you know, the S&P 500 barely moved between the release of the Fed policy statement and the end of Powell's um, press conference. You know, there was a bit of flattening of the Treasury curve. So short end yields moved up a couple of basis points. You know, long end yields were down a little, um, consistent with, I think, you know, a Fed preparing to embark on a path of policy tightening. But, you know, this this was a shrug rather than a tantrum from markets to, you know, the signal that tapering is is, is coming. And um, unless September payrolls are much weaker than expected, you know, uh, Powell made it pretty clear that the Fed is going to announce and start tapering at its meeting on November 3rd. And, and it's going to finish by the middle of next year, which implies that it's going to be reducing, you know, treasury purchases by... I suspect something like $10 billion uh, per month um, and, and reducing its mortgage-backed securities uh, uh, buying by around about $5 billion um, per, per month. So, you know, it will stop its sort of QE program and, and, and its treasury purchases by, by, by July of next year. And that would open up the option for a rate hike in uh, 2022. Um, you know, the, the lack of market reaction to your question would suggest there was little new information from um, the, the, the meeting. Um, but, but I actually think there were some additional insights into the Fed and, and Powell's thinking. And, and I actually thought there was a bit of a hawkish tone or shift to that. Um, the so-called dot plot of Fed members' interest rate forecast showed an even split in terms of the first rate hike in 2022. And, uh, you know, expectations that there would be three rate increases in 2023 and another three in um, 24. So, you know, the, the Fed, I think, is now suggesting that, you know, even with inflation only marginally above their 2% forecast over the next few years, um, and actually we think that inflation will be higher than their, their, their forecasting, but the Fed is saying even with that, there's going to be you know, eight rate hikes by the end of um, 2024. Now, you know, I don't think you should put too much weight to the dots as a guide or precise forecast to um, rate hikes. But it does suggest, I think, that the Fed is, you know, willing to raise rates earlier and by more if inflation continues to surprise to the upside. You know, 
But at the moment, uh, the Fed is not one of the kind of bricks in the market's wall of worry. But I think that could change if we get, you know, data surprises on, on, on jobs and inflation over the coming months. Elsewhere in Washington, there appears to be fiscal policy gridlock with worries that the Treasury will run out of money. What's going on? Well, without the sort of urgency of uh, the uh, uh, pandemic, I mean, Washington has, has kind of reverted to type and, and reverted to uh, gridlock, including on the issue of raising uh, the ceiling on federal government debt. And, you know, that's preventing the Treasury from issuing net new debt that it needs to do in order to fund current spending commitments, as well as meet payments on existing Treasury debt. So, you know, without an increase in the debt ceiling, the, the Treasury will run out of cash by, you know, late October, early November. Um, at the same time, Congress must also authorise a continuing resolution for new spending by the 30th of September, or the government will be forced to shut down all non-essential um, operations. And then you add into that mix, the Biden administration is trying to push through its infrastructure bill and a $3.5 trillion um, budget reconciliation um, uh, bill. Uh, look, you know, the US is not going to default. Democrats are in control of the White House and Congress, albeit with a obviously a very slim majority um, in, in the Senate. But, you know, they are able to raise or suspend the debt ceiling without Republican support, even though that clearly from a political perspective is going to sort of great with them, um, that, that the Republicans aren't willing to support an increase in the debt ceiling in a way that, you know, Democrats did do um, uh, during the uh, Trump administration. I, th I think it's more difficult to predict what will emerge out of the Biden spending and tax plans, given splits amongst the Democrats between moderates worried by the size of the proposed spending and tax hikes and those on the radical wing who don't want to you know, back down. But ultimately, I still think a compromise will be reached uh, probably in the order of a net additional spend of around you know, $2 trillion over the next um, uh, 10 years. I, I mean, I, I don't think, um, you know, this is going to sort of, you know, be a big source of volatility for markets because we've seen this play out before. But as the game of chicken on the debt ceiling continues, it's, it's certainly going to be a source of negative noise for, for the market. Um, if, if Biden's fiscal plans do get through uh, Congress, um, then I think it will ease some concerns around growth into uh, next year and, and, and could see yields move higher as you know, the Fed also begins to taper its uh, purchases of uh, Treasury securities. And to conclude today, David, is the rise in power prices in Europe a worry? Yeah, look, I mean, we've seen a, a massive surge in gas and electricity prices across Europe, and, and that does have potential implications for, for, for growth as well as inflation. Um, we recently had uh, German producer price inflation that rose 1.5% in August. That was double the, the consensus forecast. and means the year-on-year -year rate rose to 12%. And you know, some of that is, is definitely down to the, to, to the increase in, in uh, power prices. Um, the, the UK has been especially hard hit because of the nature of its power market and greater reliance on natural gas. Uh, smaller UK power companies are going under, you know, squeezed between regulated and consumer prices and dramatically higher wholesale prices. And that's raised some concerns around power supply. Um, and, and the surge in natural gas prices has, has also triggered the closure, for example, of some UK fertilizer plants. Um, and, you know, a, a, a feared 
uh, shortage of carbon dioxide that has implications across you know a, a pretty you know, wide range of industries everything from 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 meat um, co2 is used to stun chickens and pigs before slaughter to carbonated fizzy drinks to you know co2 being used in you know by the nhs and and in by the nuclear power industry so you know, it's it's there's there's a lot of kind of spillovers, um, and it's not just in Europe where we're seeing power costs rise. It's 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 been you know worldwide, and and reflects a combination of you know reduced coal powered output in in China, which has increased its demand for liquefied natural gas (LNG), but other countries have also needed more LNG with you know droughts in Brazil, for example, reducing hydropower. Um, actually, less wind in in Europe has reduced renewable supply um, at the same time as the you know the summer heat wave raised electricity demand. So, you know what we're seeing is another example of you know demand outstripping supply, driving up prices and constraining economic activity. But I think it's also a sign of disruptions to come as we transition to a net zero carbon economy and you know, that transition becomes more 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 urgent due to to climate change and you know with more extreme weather events you know droughts in brazil heat wave in europe um, you know flooding in china you know that drives the demand for energy higher but it also disrupts the supply um, of, of energy and you know investment in fossil fuels is 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 declining but it's not yet fully offset by uh, the rise in investment in clean and reliable energy. And, and along with the price of carbon set to rise over the medium term, the global energy market is becoming much more fragile. So, you know, I think we're going to see more episodes of supply demand imbalances in, in energy, uh, more volatility in, you know, associated commodity uh, uh, prices. And, and I think that impact's going to be felt, you know, more widely in terms of inflation, growth and, and politics. So, you know, as we discussed in our last podcast, uh, Alex, you know, climate change is now, you know, a macro theme for investors to contend with rather than, you know, sort of long-term issue that they can uh, think about uh, another time. Thanks for your time today, David. Thanks, Alex. This podcast is issued by Blue Bay or one of its entities. Please check the entire Blue Bay disclaimer at the following website, www.bluebay.com forward slash podcast disclaimer. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended, nor should it be intended as investment, tax or legal advice. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, nor is it a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or investment product in any jurisdiction. This podcast is not available for distribution in any jurisdiction where such distribution would be prohibited and is not aimed at such persons in those jurisdictions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Blue Bay makes no express or implied warranties or representations with respect to the information contained in this podcast and hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of accuracy, completeness or fitness for a particular purpose. Blue Bay is under no obligation to update the information in the podcast to reflect changes after the publication date. The information contained in this podcast is believed to be reliable, but Blue Bay cannot and does not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness or completeness. The document is intended only for professional clients and eligible counterparties as defined by the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive or in the US by accredited investors as defined by the Securities Act of 1933 or qualified purchases as defined in the Investment Company Act of 1940 as applicable and should not be relied upon by any other category of consumer. No part of this document may be reproduced, redistributed or passed on directly or indirectly to any other person, published in whole or in part for any purpose in any manner without the prior written permission of Blue Bay or one of its entities. Copyright 2021.